Okay, hello everyone. Uh, my name is Kevin Chung, intensivist and chair of medicine at the Uniform Services University in Bethesda, Maryland. On behalf of the American College of Chest Physicians, I'd like to welcome you to our webinar uh, entitled uh, Hindsight is 2020, what we have learned about COVID-19. Uh, this is part two of a three-part series. Today, we're gonna be focusing on bedside care. Uh, we are extremely fortunate to be joined by our uh, distinguished panel of world-class critical care physicians and researchers. Uh, I'm gonna uh, go ahead and briefly introduce each of our uh, panelists. Uh, Dr. Richard Oakler from Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. If you could just wave, smile, or nod. Uh, Dr. Nita Kadir, Ronald Reagan uh, UCLA Medical Center, Los Angeles, California. Dr. Thomas Zekmeny, uh, Cardiff University, Wales, United Kingdom. And Dr. Victor Test, uh, Texas Tech University uh, Health Sciences Center in Lubbock, Texas. Uh, okay, so we're gonna go ahead and get started by getting to know our panelists a little bit. I've asked uh, each panel, panel member to introduce themselves and in more detail and talk briefly about their role uh, in the last eight to nine months. Dr. Oakler, could you get us uh, started? Yeah, thank you, Kevin. So uh, I'm Rich Oakler. I'm one of the uh, critical care physicians here at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. Uh, born in born in New York, came out here for residency, fellowship, et cetera, and have been in the Midwest ever since. So my roles at the Mayo Clinic are uh, as the director of the medical ICU and also as the uh, medical director of the Mayo, the uh, ICU recovery program, uh, otherwise known as the PICS Clinic. Um, and so in those roles over the past six to nine months here in Rochester, I've uh, been quite involved with the COVID response. So our medical ICU has become the de facto COVID ICU, and uh, that's required uh, a significant amount of uh, change in the culture and the, uh, the physical plant and some of our procedures. And I'll be telling you a little bit about that later. My PhD is in physiology. My primary interests in our research realm are in mechanical ventilation and uh, respiratory mechanics, et cetera. Um, but uh, today, uh, the focus will be on COVID response. So thanks for having me. Great. Thank you, Dr. Oakler. Dr. Kadir? Hi, everyone. I'm Nita Kadir. I am one of the pulmonary critical care docs here at UCLA. I am the co-director of both our medical ICU and our COVID-19 response, um, and thus have been heavily involved with all things COVID over the last several months. And um, aged approximately 100 years. Um, so I'm looking forward to sharing with you guys a little bit about our experience here. Great. Thank you very much, Dr. Kadir. How about Dr. Zagmany? Uh, hi, I'm Thomas Zagmany. Uh, I'm an ICU consultant in uh, the Grange University Hospital in Wales. Um, I have been involved with the with the COVID response both on the on the hospital side, and uh, I happen to be the clinical lead of the OVS critical care and trauma network during the first wave. So um, I have been heavily involved in coordinating the 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 nationwide response and how the ICUs were stepping up and then stepping down uh, during the first wave and now in the in the second wave. Um, our new intensive care unit, which is relatively small in US standards, have got 24 beds and we've got a steady stream of COVID-19 patients. 
my other interest uh, is uh, is research and uh, my conflict of interest for this talk will be that I'm the principal investigator locally for both the recovery and the remap cap trials so you will probably hear something about those drugs uh, trialed in 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 these settings thank you thank you very much and last but not least dr test howdy uh, thank you uh to uh, Kevin and to Chess for allowing me to participate. I am the um, Chief of Pulmonary and Critical Care at uh, Texas Tech in Lubbock. Before this, I was the Director of the Pulmonary Vascular Disease Program at Duke University. I'm also on the Board of Regents of Chest and uh, the Education uh, Committee for Chest and also the Training Transitions Committee for Chest. Uh, my role here in Lubbock uh, is, is, the, is also is the Director of the Medical ICU. Um, I've uh, been active, ma actively managing COVID patients on a near daily basis for almost nine months. Uh, uh, we, uh, uh, that has also involved coordinating with our um, uh, colleagues and other, uh, other intensive care unit specialties, neuro neurologic crit critical care and uh, surgical critical care, as well as we uh, developed our response and management of these patients. And so thank you again for having me. Great. Uh, thank you, Dr. Test. So now we're going to go ahead and uh, go around the horn and uh, get a general overview in uh, some uh, the re assigned respective topics uh, for the audience. If you have questions during uh, each of the panelists' sort of overview, uh, feel free to uh, type in the question in the comments or Q&A section. I will be monitoring that and anything that uh, will add to the discussion, I will go ahead and ask uh, immediately at that point. Um, and if not, we'll, we can just save them uh, for the end. So I'm gonna ask Dr. Oakler um, first to give a general overview of clinical management of COVID over the last eight months. Um, what what uh, things have remained the same, what things have changed in general? Can you talk about uh, clinical management in general? Oh, I think you're muted. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so uh, quite a few changes, obviously, um, since the this pandemic started. Uh, I'll talk about a couple of both physical and cultural changes that we've really had to address here, at least in Rochester, with the caveat being that we were a little bit geographically isolated on the first wave. And I think that gave us some advantage, actually, when, when uh, uh, looking at all of you and all of the um, uh, changes and experiences that you are having, it gave us a little bit of time to prepare for for things coming down the pike. And when I, I talked to that uh, end, um, you know, it, it was very easy to stick to our guns and really um, focus on what we know works best on these patients, especially in the first wave, because we weren't really overwhelmed, the system wasn't overwhelmed. And so our focus really was to continue high quality supportive care and keep um, uh, you know most of our standardized approaches that we use in place um, without uh, having to, to go to kind of a contingency plan um, or, or change of location that might impair some of the uh, kind of multidisciplinary team that we use to, to uh, treat our patients. You know, when we talk about that though, you know, a key is team dynamics. And one thing we found early on, in fact, probably just in the first couple of days of the pandemic, were just some of the team dynamics related to trust and 
what information we could actually reliably uh, uh, use and and uh, um, use to change our practice and implement some of the the, the uh, methodology we're using going forward. And so that really surrounded things like PPE. You know, the rumors out there. What what was working on the PPE front? Where it was this an airborne uh, condition? And I know maybe I'm stirring up some controversy. I know if, in the Twitterverse, there's certainly still all sorts of talk about what what the actual AGP. Uh, guidelines might be and what PPE is best. I, I can tell you we learned some lessons from our high consequence infectious disease team that I'm also a part of. When we trained there, really the biggest problem we had was um, in the doffing process, that's where we were contaminating folks. And so we said, hey, you know what? We need our maximum PPE, but we need to keep it to the maximum that's the minimum and not overly complicated. So we knew things like headgear and these very long head to toe gowns were hard to get in and out of. And um, so we actually minimized it to your standard kind of modified contact uh, isolation uh, with the uh, use of the, like most are using gowns, gloves, N95, if there's an AGP, otherwise a surgical mask and a face shield. And so um, with that, we've really had no um, healthcare worker infections in any of our um, actual COVID units. Um, we have had several infections that have been identified through contact tracing to have occurred outside in the, uh, in the um, uh, kind of in the wild, so to speak, but not directly related to patient care. So we're pretty confident on that. And it took uh, quite a bit of uh, town hall and information sharing type venues with our IPAC folks, with the ID folks, uh, me and my role as the uh, medical ICU director to really kind of a target and address those kind of rumors that would circulate over and over. So again, I can't emphasize, we're going to talk about things like increasing our ICU capacity, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, I, I think really the first thing is that team building and to get everybody on board and confident in the fact that what we're doing is um, is effective and that we're keeping each other safe and protected. And so uh, that was what I really envisioned my first role as. And, and I think we've been pretty successful that way. Again, um, I think, you know, the key is we know the things that work, we know the things that don't. Dr. Kadir will probably talk about some of the changes in mechanical ventilation um, or, uh, you know, and Dr. Test maybe with the VTE, et cetera. Um, there were lots, again, lots of wild um rumors and and things that you could read on the internet and all over the place that kept coming back to us. Should everybody be anticoagulated? Should we have um, TPA given to certain folks based on D-dimers, et cetera, et cetera? And, and again, I think we stuck mostly to our kind of standard approaches, our high quality supportive care, and we've done very well with that. Obviously, there, you know, as we learn more through the data that's coming uh, down the pike, you know, we've made some changes. So for instance, we hadn't been using steroids on most folks, but after the steroid data in, in ventilation, we started to do that. The remdesivir and some of the other um, um, study drugs um, have, uh, have been used in certain patients, but again, not sort of blanket approaches. And we've actually utilized our ICU COVID ID team to help direct that. So. Um, just recently with some of these going um, on EUAs and, and et cetera, there uh, has been a change to that. We had every COVID patient having an ID ICU consult, and that's changing a little bit now. You know, again, we could talk about things like convalescent plasma 
I, I think I won't focus on specific um, therapies and maybe we can get into that in the discussion. But again, we were a, a bit conservative with how we applied those and again, stuck to, to, to things we know worked well. So, you know, our ventilation strategies, our early mobility, trying to stick to the A through F bundle, et cetera, et cetera. Um, other things that change. So physical plant, our beds capacity normally in the uh, MICU is 32 beds. We have expanded that now to 60 beds. And with that comes quite a bit of challenge, uh, as you all know. And, and uh, so we're averaging now about 30 to 35 COVID patients per day in our ICU uh, setting. And so that's more than our entire MICU had been before. So we've had to employ uh, and utilize team members to their to their maximum uh, ability. So fellows became subconsultant teams, APPs have uh, had a little bit of expanded practice. Um, to offset some of the need for ICU, we've had some culture changes at Mayo. So I would say, and the folks on, on the webinar that may have trained or, or know folks at Mayo, we always say there's the right way, the wrong way, and the Mayo way. There's some things we just do for cultural reasons that are hard to change, um, but we've really started to try and get folks to use high flow on the floor. So we're now letting folks start high flow nasal cannula uh, on our floor services. Um, and we're starting to look at maybe BiPAP or CPAP on the floor. I know to a lot of folks on this call, that probably sounds funny uh, and you're already doing that. But for us, that was actually a big um, change. Um, and, and again, it gets to back to the trust and the team dynamics and backing things up with monitoring and RRT calls, et cetera. To that end, and maybe I'll stop after this, is we've really started to employ our telehealth presence that we've always focused outside of our institution and into our health system. We really turn that more inward now and we're helping to offset some of the workload and staff those team members that we're talking about. So a subconsultant COVID team, which would be, uh, you know, a fellow really in the lead with consultant oversight through the telehealth has uh, fairly uh, worked fairly well. Um, and uh, also the telehealth folks uh, and re remote patient monitoring, kind of keeping an eye on folks out on the floor that we're starting high flow on and BiPAP on and, and things like that. It helps again to reassure them that they're not alone out there. This is something new for them, but there's someone looking over their shoulder and keeping, uh, keeping them safe and escalating care when we need it. And uh, so to, the, to that end, we employed what we call a, you know, a, a kind of a system-wide critical care officer of the day, which coordinates with the state um, with the ECMO group and, and liaisons for patient flow for decision making on some of these tough cases of resource allocation. And um, finally, the, the remote patient monitoring has helped us get people out of the hospital a little bit sooner than we normally would be comfortable with. And they're, they're actually followed by telehealth and a pulse oximeter and a vital sign uh, monitor, basically that reports in twice a day to the remote um, patient monitoring team. And in appropriate patients, they actually then, when they graduate from that program in a week or two, if they're home and continue to improve, the appropriate people who may have a higher risk of PICS actually then get handed off to us in the uh, MCIRP or the ICU recovery program for further follow-up if necessary. Um, so I think, you know, that was a lot of things. I probably talked more than I should have, and I'm happy to answer questions, but those are just some of the general changes that we've uh, had to had to make with uh, a, a fairly large and sometimes lumbering system.
Um, so I'll stop there. Thanks. Yeah, thank you, Dr. O'Clair. You mentioned uh, how your PPE posture sort of got tweaked over time. Uh, has that changed with regards to your PPE posture during aerosol generating procedures, uh, mainly intubations and bronx, uh, et cetera? Yeah, I, I think you know the, the interesting thing is actually what constitutes an AGP. So obviously the, the bronx and the intubations are, are the easier ones, but that really has been quite a, um, a, a, a sore spot or, or, or a point of disagreement between some of the providers. And, and again, we've tried to look at the data as best we can. So for instance, a patient on a, on a ventilator um, with a viral filter in place, is that a medium, low or high risk AGP? Uh, you know, technically, sure, if the circuit is closed and the patient's paralyzed and there's no disconnection, maybe I'd say it's a lower risk. But unfortunately, uh, you know, a lot of times these folks pop off or, or you know, there requires more suctioning than inline ballards can do or inline suctioning. And so how do you decide on that? And then, you know, to get into the complexities of what is your airflow monitoring? I, I've gotten more into engineering and building engineering than I've ever really wanted to in the past few months where we know, you know, certain rooms will turn over the number of cycles in 20 minutes, some in, in 60 minutes. But either way, I think we focused it down to having two sets of PPE. So you have the, the AGP PPE and the non-AGP PPE, and really the difference there being kind of the, a full face shield in an N95 versus a surgical mask. And, and again, we've done quite well with that. I, the ones that I, I think I've always been a little bit struck by, and, and I, I know there's a tendency to cut, want to cover every part of your body, but really, again, from some of our experience, at least internally, with head covers and the really long gowns, that's where we've tried to we've tried to avoid those things because we really have seen um, more doffing contamination there than um, probably the benefit of any further protection. You know, obviously, as everyone on the call knows, the, the virus is probably getting in your eyes, nose, and mouth, and not through your hair. So. Um, I, again, that's just been our approach. I know there are different approaches to it and, and interesting so, what other folks say, yeah. So face shield and N95, that's your aerosol generating posture? Uh, in, in addition to the, you know, so gown gloves um, and, uh, and then uh, face shield and an N95, yes. But not PAPR? Uh, so an N95 or a PAPR. Or a PAPR. So PAPR. if you're fit tested, we've been seeing a face shield and a N95 equivalent to a PAPR. Okay. Very good. Thank you for those thoughts. Um, I think we'll move on to Dr. Kadir. Can you give us an overview of uh, respiratory support and uh, how you've sort of managed that over the last eight months, eight to nine months, and how that's evolved? So I think um, Dr. Oakler alluded to this. Emotion played a large role in some of our early response. And by we, I mean like the collective we, uh, at least in the U.S., um, I think that ratio of data to emotion played a substantial role in our practices. And thankfully that's evolved over time. Um, there's a lot of fear, um, I think driving some of these initial practices, which is understandable considering we were hearing these um, really sky high uh, mortality rates reported in some of the early case series. Um, while we emphasized evidence-based management at our institution, from the beginning, I found myself doing a lot of like talking people down from the ledge. Um, oh, my buddy gave TPA to a bunch of his patients. Should I be doing that too? Should we be um, anticoagulating everybody? So there are a lot of questions like that and like basically nightly almost calls um, addressing things like that. All of these stories, all of these fears. Um, 
And now, you know, sadly, we have over 15 million cases here in the US and, um, you know, COVID's become more of a routine part of care in the ICU, um, which I think has resulted in us treating this in a more rational manner um, and in the, you know, more similar manner as how we treat other forms of respiratory failure. Um, so for example, there are a lot of debates initially about pre-intubation management of patients with COVID and hypoxemic respiratory failure. Um, should we use high flow? Should we use non-invasive? Should we not use any of these and just intubate early? Um, and at least some of these questions were driven by concerns surrounding aerosolization and infection prevention and, and just avoiding emergent intubations in these patients in general. Um, but when you think about it, the fact that we were even considering not doing things like high flow was a deviation from what we've done for other forms of respiratory failure. Um, there's a substantial body of evidence uh, suggesting that high flow may indeed be beneficial. The Flora Lee trial in the pre-COVID days found that the use of high flow was associated with decreased mortality and some subsequent meta-analyses have found an association with decreased rates of intubation. Um, and more recently in the COVID population, there's some evidence that it may be associated with decreased rates of intubation. So, um, you know, I don't know for certain that this is the case, but my sense is that we are all using high flow more frequently than we did initially. Again, this, to my knowledge, has not been assessed systematically, but at least anecdotally, this seems to be the case. Um, and um, one thing that I found a little annoying about this was the lay press coverage about high flow, um, talking about it as though it's like this new innovative thing, which, you know, it's not, <laughs> um, we all know that. Um, and, you know, with that coming like almost this vilification of ventilators um, and, you know, a lot of questions both among us as healthcare professionals and also among the lay press came up about when do we intubate? Are we intubating too soon? Are we intubating the right people. Um, and I, I suspect that over time, intubation practices have changed as well as we've gotten more comfortable with this disease and more comfortable with PPE. Um, rates of intubation have been quite variable, at least in terms of what's been reported in published cohorts, anywhere from 29% to 90% of ICU patients. Um, and now we don't have a lot of detail about why this is so variable. Does it reflect resource allocation? Like in some places were the hospitals so busy that they could only bring intubated patients to the ICU or did it actually reflect differences in actual intubation practices and criteria? Um, we don't know and we actually unfortunately still don't know. Not a lot has been published about intubation practices at specific institutions. Um, but I do suspect that the threshold to intubate has changed, or at least more thoughts been given to this. Um, I remember early on hearing that some centers were intubating patients who needed more than six liters nasal cannula. Um, and you know, in retrospect, that sounds kind of extreme. Um, I don't hear that very often anymore. Um, and I, I hope I don't, I, I, hope I, I hope to not hear it very often anymore. Um, because we, we do know, of course, that even prior to COVID, there's no real set cutoff in terms of hypoxia, level of hypoxemia at which to intubate. Our decision depends on a lot of things, the work of breathing, the patient's clinical trajectory, presence of other organ failures. It's not a simple or straightforward decision. Um, 
this has, I don't think, become any more clear during the COVID era, but um, I do think it's fair to say that there's nothing that we know thus far to suggest that intubation timing should be too different in patients with COVID compared to um, patients with any other severe respiratory illness. Um, I think, you know, beyond that, in terms of ventilation, that's also been an area of fierce debate. Um, and um, I think this is a little bit more settled now. Um, the, we all heard the, uh, this is not ARDS theory circulated quite a bit um, early on, um, much of it due to some anecdotally reported high lung compliance observed um, in some cases um, with the publication of subsequent cohorts showing compliance ranging more like in the 20s to 30s, um, you know, and a lot of back and forth on Twitter and in um, journals about this argument, is it ARDS, is it not ARDS? I think we eventually circled back to, yes, this is ARDS. Um, and um, in terms of managing ARDS, um, you know, even if there are different phenotypes of ARDS, which there likely are, um, we still don't know of anything better than low tidal volume ventilation in terms of what to use to support this patient population um, in spite of any potential heterogeneity. Um, and by better, I mean, we don't know of a management strategy that's any better at saving lives. Um, so in, until we do, I think deviating from that practice of low tidal volume ventilation is at best improvisational and potentially harmful. Um, so, you know, after a whole lot of debate, I think we're kind of back to where we began in terms of ARDSnet, um, which has now been around for 20 years. Um, so, you know, again, like I mentioned about high flow, about intubation practices, while I suspect that practice has changed to reflect what I'm saying, that we're now more comfortable saying that this is ARDS and ventilate it like ARDS, um, this has not yet, to my knowledge, been studied systematically, so it'll be interesting to see if this is actually the case, but anecdotally, this does seem to be what I'm noticing um, in terms of COVID management. So, you know, ultimately, what have we learned? What's changed? Um, maybe just that everything old is new again, and we had a lot of things in our toolkit all along that maybe we weren't taking advantage of early on. So Dr. Kadir, could you um, talk a little bit about uh, your threshold for proning patients and um, how long do you prone, when you stop proning, et cetera? Sure, so for mechanically ventilated patients, I will prone patients when they have a P to F ratio of less than 150 on 50% FiO2 or more. Um, and this is assuming I've you know made whatever vent changes, optimize them on the vent as best I can. Um, and then we will prone for um, 16 to 18 hours a day, um, sometimes longer, depending on the patient's um, response to proning, sometimes not quite as long, depending on, you know, any complications that might develop from proning, like facial ulcers and things like that. Um, in terms of when to stop proning, um, I will usually stop when either A, the patient is not responding to proning in terms of there's no you know, there isn't benefit in terms of oxygenation or um, driving pressure or anything like that. Um, or I will stop when their P 
to F ratio improves to above uh, 150 on 50% FiO2 or less. Got it. And also, could you talk a little bit about um, how your outcomes uh, have evolved over time? Has it remained the same generally? Uh, what is it compared to other uh, types of ARDS? Uh, we you know, we can all recall uh, reports of mortality being really high if you go on mechanical ventilation. Is that true at your center? So I would, the last time I ran our mortality was a, a little while ago. So these might not reflect the most up-to-date numbers, but our ICU mortality for COVID has been around 20%. Um, it's been a little higher in patients who are mechanically ventilated, probably between 20 and 30%. So, you know, in large published cohorts of ARDS, um, you know, we, we see that mortality rates are um, up to 50% in, in severe cases. So um, while I can't say I've directly compared our non-COVID ARDS outcomes to our COVID ARDS outcomes um, all that recently, um, you know, I these the mortality rates that we've seen for COVID are in line or, you know, maybe even a little bit better than mortality rates for um, ARDS that have been reported in cohorts prior to COVID. Thank you very much, Dr. Kadir. That was uh, excellent. Uh, so Dr. Zekmany, uh, you have the privilege in the tall order of uh, reviewing pharmacologic therapies in COVID. Uh, we could probably talk at two hours on this topic alone, but you have five minutes. Yeah, thank you very much. And I, I will try to stick to that, uh, that five minutes. And uh, it, it was a very nice introduction by Dr. Kadir that uh, we have come to the conclusion that this is actually ARDS. And I think we are coming to the conclusion that uh, COVID-19 is actually viral sepsis. So we will, we will have to look back and uh, and with the benefit of 2020 hindsight I, I think we we are looking back our treatment strategies which we started to use uh, at the at the beginning especially in the in the UK um, as somewhat suspect and uh, what we what we have learned is that yes we would like to have source control uh, but the repurposed drugs that we were trying to use uh, they didn't provide the source control, and uh, a lot of the um, a lot of the hype of different therapies, which this will work, that will work, that will stop the transmission uh, of the virus, that will that will stop the um, the the progression of, uh, of the disease. Uh, we haven't seen any um, real results. I. As I said, um, I have been heavily involved both in the recovery and the remap cap studies. And when we set them up in March uh, in my hospital, I must say that my biggest concern about the drugs that we were trialing in, in the recovery trial, which was hydroxychloroquine, Calitra, uh, azithromycin, and dexamethasone was actually with dexamethasone because that, that's where we had relatively good quality evidence that it might hurt patients uh, in, in viral sepsis. The other three drugs I was completely uh, okay with because I thought that they probably won't hurt, but dexamethasone could hurt. And then that was the drug which uh, actually showed to be beneficial and, uh, and one of the three drugs which are actually licensed to, to combat COVID-19. Um, in the UK, because we had a very cautious 
uh, and sort of coordinated response to the to the pandemic, we haven't had the luxury of using um, a variety of drugs. So we we have always stuck to what we knew was working. And uh, even when the the data started to come out, uh, for instance, um, the ACTT1 uh, study showed that uh, remdesivir might be beneficial. Uh, it is still not a mainstay of therapy in um, in in our institutions, um, mostly because it it is uh, more difficult to get hold of. But also um, there is a uh, a general uh, reservedness in uh, in in our our UK colleagues that um, that we don't need to use all the all the drugs which are available. There are fortunately uh, the scientists are, are working hard, and there are always new approaches. And this is what you can see in the proliferation of the uh, of the different immunomodulators, which I'm not going to go into because the sepsis work in the last uh, 25 years showed us that it is really difficult to find one single uh, one, one single mediator, which if you block, then you will have a, a better results. There are some really uh, uh, interesting and hopefully encouraging results with, uh, with immunomodulators in remap caps. So tocilizumab might be something that we will be looking at using more frequently. Um, but we, we just need to wait for, for those results. And I have seen in the, um, in the Q&A uh, session, and that was one of the questions which uh, the, the, the audience uh, sent in, that what about Ivermectin? Uh, and that is, a, that is a question which, is, which has not been answered. Um, it has been used extensively, especially in the third world, especially my Indian friends and colleagues, they, they are using it in the outpatient setting, uh, less so in, in the hospital setting. Um, there are a number of well-designed uh, randomized controlled trials looking at whether, whether this drug could be uh, useful, uh, but the data apart from the, the odd publication in, uh, in a good journal like, like CHEST is still sketchy, uh, whether that this, this can help uh, in hospitalized patients. My, the, my hunch at this moment and, uh, and uh, the, the available very anecdotal data is probably uh, showing that it might be helpful in the outpatient setting before patients are uh, coming into, into our healthcare systems. Uh, I could go on for a long time about all the other drugs, but I'm just looking at the uh, the time, and I think I will hand over to the next speaker, and then we can have some Q&As later. Before we do that, can I ask very briefly uh, about remdesivir in the UK? What are your thoughts on remdesivir? So remdesivir uh, was uh, was only available um, uh, on on a compassionate use, uh, and it's still only available really on a on a compassionate use in in the UK. So we have used it in uh, in a trial setting, um, and uh, and I haven't uh, I haven't given it to uh, a, a single patient before uh, the ACTT one uh, study was published. Since that publication, we, uh, my colleagues started to use it on the respiratory ward, but not on the uh, on the intensive care unit. And our uh, agreement is that if it has been started, then we will continue. But um, the 
the randomized control trial and also the, the solidarity, which uh, has got its, its own flows, um, doesn't seem to be uh, pointing towards a lot of benefit uh, on patients who are mechanically ventilated. So we are, we are definitely not using it as standard care. Thank you very much for that overview. Um, for, the, for the audience, uh, I know you have a lot of questions. Uh, we're gonna go ahead and hold those uh, until we hear from Dr. Test. And uh, please, uh, we'll try to get through as many as possible. Uh, so Dr. Test, um, you're up. And could you uh, give us an overview of your approach uh, to uh, venothromboembolic complications, prevention, et cetera, et cetera? Sure. Well, as uh, Dr. Kadir mentioned earlier, the, 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 this approach keeps evolving. And uh, during the summer, of course, we had two uh, guideline statements from two uh, large societies, including CHEST and the International Society for uh, Hemostasis and Thrombolysis and Hemostasis on prophylaxis, not in therapeutics. Uh, and like most things with, you know, with COVID, uh, there have been a lot of uh, uh, hypothesis about what to do. And I think if someone mentioned that you could prevent DVT by putting peanut butter on your ears, that people would have tried that already. Um, we do know several things. The first is that the coagulation uh, tests that we typically use on uh, including the D-dimer, the PT, and the PTT are abnormal in these patients with a great deal, deal of uh, frequency. They regularly have elevated fibrinogen and they have decreased platelets. On top of that, um, uh, they have a significantly increased incidence of VTE. If you, there have been in the thousands upon thousands of studies and uh, or papers published on coronavirus in the last 11 months, uh, I would guess about 15 to 20% of them are in, on, on venous VTE. And so the, the instance of VTE in the ICU population ranges between 15 and 80% on these, on these case series. Um, the, on average, it's around 30%, even in series where they had 100% compliance with uh, uh, pharmacologic um, prophylaxis and even systemic anticoagulation. What we've done has changed over time. Uh, initially, we started off with the standard uh, thromboprophylaxis. Uh, when the early uh, news came out from uh, China and uh, from Italy about the improved outcomes with systemic anticoagulation, and because we had significant uh, numbers of patients with uh, an increased number of patients with myocardial infarction as well as uh, pulmonary embolism in the first uh, uh, couple of months of patients we saw we started anticoagulating people more aggressively um, really monitoring um, the uh, originally uh, a higher level of, of um, intermediate dose uh, prophylaxis as well as mechanical prophylaxis in each of these patients uh, then full anticoagulation in the setting of known VTE or with evidence of progressive hypoxemia and particularly increased dead space ventilation. Uh, we typically were using anoxaparin and, uh, and uh, 81 milligram aspirin. In, in June and July, when the new guide, when the guideline statements came out, they advocated actually against routine uh, anticoagulation of, of these patients. And, uh, and the, the increased uh, sort of intermediate dose uh, prophylaxis uh, was uh, there was a, there was discordance between the two societies on what to do. Uh, we have then therefore continued to, with the increased uh, uh, 
prophylaxis. Uh, uh, one of the practices that was advocated very on was to use the D-dimer to guide you. And when patients' D-dimers began to climb, that you would anticoagulate, increase, step up their anticoagulation, that you can then follow them with the anti-factor 10A level because there's an identified increased risk of heparin uh, resistance. And we were doing that uh, very extensively for a while. We're still following the D-dimer. Uh, I think well, on average, we have more patients anticoagulated uh, than we then uh, uh, without clear proof of VTE. Uh, I think though, despite that, we, we, we haven't had any identified cases of VTE uh, in, our, in our population, but we certainly see people, despite anticoagulation, develop increasing uh, physiologic dead space with increasing CO2s despite adequate minute ventilation, suggesting microvascular thrombosis, which of course is a whole other issue here. Um, but as a, as a consequence to the uh, statements from the ISTH in the ACC in the chest, uh, we I backed down on that somewhat, and I haven't really seen any significant uh, aftermath in that. I think the jury is still out because every every week, every month, there's a new study coming out suggesting that systemic uh, anticoagulation actually does have some benefit. Now they're not randomized controlled trials; those trials are still in progress. And so we await those trials with great anticipation. Um, and uh, I think one for our, our center in particular, once a patient gets to the ICU, they, uh, as Dr. Kadir mentioned, you know, the, almost all of our patients are in, have severe ARDS. I mean, they are not, but for them to get to our ICU, they have to have that. And so thus transporting them and to the uh, to, for imaging is also problematic. And so we reply, rely a lot on ultrasound and echo to guide us for uh, sometimes for presumptive diagnosis of VTE uh, when we have climbing D-dimers and we have uh, you know, clinical pictures that match that. I wish we didn't do that. I wish we could uh, procure imaging on every patient to look for large vessel VTE, but we, we, we can't. And then of course, there's the whole question of how do you image for small vessel uh, or microscopic uh, thrombosis, and the, and the answer to that is you really can't. Uh, this uh, picture continues to evolve, and uh, we will uh, hopefully have some definitive answers about, about systemic anticoagulation and also the question that was brought up earlier about TPA, because that has been uh, shooting around the social media and the internet for a good while now with not very much proof uh, to support it. So thank you, Dr. Test. Um, what about your um, screening strategy? Are you screening routinely with ultrasound or waiting for a specific D-dimer level or just wait until you have something clinically symptomatic? Well, we, we've, we've been screening every day with D-dimers. We follow that and, uh, and follow the platelet count when we're not, um, when we're, I think also, you know, we again look at the sort of rough estimate is that, is that do we think the, Physiolog the uh, uh, physiologic dead space is that increasing. Uh, we, we, we use ultrasound um, at the bedside clinically uh, quite regularly, but the uh, formal diagnostic ultrasounds for VTE, uh, we don't get them routinely unless we have a, a reason to suspect that. Uh, we'd probably adjust our anticoagulation more on the basis of the D-dimer, although very frankly, the chest guidelines were quite explicit in stating that that was not recommended. And, um, you know, we've been re I think we've been reassessing that approach for the last couple of months. So very good. Uh, thank you very much um, to all the panelists for giving that general overview. We have the next uh, 
15 to 20 minutes uh, where we'll field uh, a variety of questions. And so uh, please bear with us. If you have additional questions, please feel free to either enter it in the chat or the Q&A. Um, the first that I see here, um, is there any evidence of continuing dexamethasone for more than 10 days? And then I, uh, there's a related question from uh, the registration. Is there room for varying steroid dose depending on severity of disease? Uh, who wants to take that one? Well, well I will, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, I, I will take the, 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 the first one, the, the, whether there is any evidence for 10 days. At this moment, the, the, there isn't a, a very robust evidence uh, for that. Um, the, there are only a few studies which, uh, which looked at longer steroid therapy, and uh, it doesn't seem to be that longer is better in, in that sense. And we are all um, a bit wary about the, the potential complications. Um, and the varied steroid dose, I will uh, let Dr. Nadir to comment on. Um, I, I'm just going to kind of reiterate what you just said. We don't have um, the, we don't have much evidence for the use of steroids beyond 10 days. I think it's important to keep in mind, though, that longer durations of steroids are more likely to be associated with adverse effects. Um, in the recovery trial, steroids were discontinued at either 10 days or at time of hospital discharge. So in some patients, they were discontinued earlier, um, which I will say I've done in my practice and people who are having, who are, you know, clinically improving from the COVID standpoint, but perhaps having adverse effects like um, refractory hyperglycemia, that's, that's come up a, a bunch of times. Um, so in terms of longer duration, I guess um, it remains to be seen, but not that I'm aware of yet. Great. Thank you, Dr. Kadir and Dr. Uh, Zekmany. So sticking on this uh, topic of steroids, how about inhaled steroids? Uh, is anybody using inhaled steroids uh, in the ICU or um, even ED patients? Yeah, I can, I can address that. So there was a, a great deal of enthusiasm from uh, a city down to the south of us, a physician who was, uh, has been using inhaled budesonide uh, with a 100% cure rate for COVID. Um, so we get that question an awful lot around here. We do not routinely use inhaled budesonide or any other inhaled steroid uh, in the treatment. Now, occasionally we have patients who have significant cough, and I will say that at least anecdotally, that seems to help the cough in uh, some of these patients, even on the mechanical ventilator, but we are not using it therapeutically with the idea of treating COVID uh, at our center. Thank you for that um, answer. I, I always get a little bit suspicious when somebody claims a 100% effectiveness. And so uh, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, sort of on the same topic, maybe related, how about aspergillus? Have you seen any cases of aspergillus in your centers? Um, anybody? I have. Um, I don't have a good sense of how common it is. I have seen um, a couple of uh, fungal infections post severe COVID. Um, we know that this occurs um, after influenza and I think it remains to be seen how frequent this is post COVID. Um, my sense right now is it's probably not terribly common. Um, the cases I did see were earlier on in the pandemic when there were a lot when there was a lot more use of IL-6 inhibitors and sometimes combining those with steroids. So 
immunosuppression, you know, may play a role in this. Um, but we will see. I know there is somebody working on compiling a case series on on um, on post-COVID aspergillus. Okay, thank you. Um, I think we're we're still sticking to the topic of steroids. Uh, there seems to be a lot of interest. So solumedrol versus dexamethasone, and then somebody commented that they thought the um, dexamethasone six milligrams might be too low. Uh, any comments on this? Um, I'll, I'll take that. Um, the the dose again. It is it is really unclear that what is the correct dose, and and you know, quite frankly, we we don't know. When you look at the the published evidence, it is probably somewhere between six milligram of dexamethasone to to ten to twelve milligram dexamethasone. That 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 might be the 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 right uh, dose, but we don't exactly know. And again. I just keep coming back to that. We don't have any evidence that more is better in, in this respect. Um, what we have seen um, and we continue to see repeatedly um, and going back to the, to, to the previous question a, a little bit is that higher dose steroids uh, have been uh, advocated by our ECMO centers in those patients who were not responding to, to therapy, but, but very much later in the course. So we are talking about uh, two, three weeks in the, in the course with, uh, with significant fibrotic changes on the, on the CT scan. That's where we have uh, turned to higher doses of, of steroids. And uh, currently there is no, no clear data in, in our hands. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. So it, it, I, 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 don't, I don't have a clear guidance for that. And uh, do you at all use inflammatory markers to uh, decide on a dose of steroids, increasing it or not? No, okay. You know, I, I would agree with Thomas on, on all, all of what he just said. I think one of the big issues we've seen is um, with steroid and to Dr. Kadir's point is uh, especially in the ICU recovery clinic, the patients who've recovered, some of them definitely have had more of the neuromuscular weakness uh, issues with that. The other thing is, you know, from co-infection standpoint, at least in our experience, two, two comments, I suppose. From the mortality standpoint, we've been tracking through our almost 300 ICU patients now with covid we really, as I alluded to earlier in, in the talk here, we, I, we really didn't use many steroids at all at the beginning, um, taking more of the approach to uh, uh, some of the data from flu, et cetera. Now that we've started using them, I, I can't tell you that 6, 10, or 20 milligrams of dexamethasone has made an inkling a difference in our, our outcomes thus far. Um, and then I would say from co-infection standpoint, we continue to see staph and strep being our most common co-infections. And uh, I think the others really are occurring at, at kind of, you know, the usual rates we would see incidentally found more than, you know, something associated specifically with COVID. But again, that's just a, a single center experience. Great, thank you very much. Uh, just to pivot a little bit on another topic, there've been a couple of questions about BiPAP. So what percentage of patients um, do you think uh, require BiPAP do you go from high flow directly to intubation or is there a significant percentage that go on BiPAP? And if uh, you do have patients go on BiPAP, how long do you keep them on BiPAP at 100%? Uh, how long is too long? Um, I can take that one. Um, I don't use BiPAP very much in, um, in this setting um, because COVID is not 
something that gets better quickly. Um, and for the most part, I try to avoid BiPAP in acute respiratory failure if I'm not in a setting that the patient could, you know, have a relatively rapid turnaround, like, you know, CHF, volume overload, things like that. Um, I have used it as a pre-oxygenation method. Um, I have used it in patients who are chronically on BiPAP at night, certainly. Um, but I would say my use of it overall is on the low side. Um, I will also add to that though, that we don't have access to helmet BiPAP. So I wonder if anybody else on the panel does and what their experience with that has been. Great question. Anybody else on the panel? Care to comment? Well, uh, first I would comment, I guess, from at least again here, what we've done is um, the thing we found is these folks really do like flow. And so we've actually are, are not going even to nasal pendants or non-rebreathers. We go right from say six liters nasal cannula to high flow. Um, they do seem to respond when we have to transport, especially from the floor, you know, just five or, or, or so of CPAP tends to improve the, some of these folks. And I think that gets to the lung compliance question and uh, are some of these people being overpeeped? But um, I, I think for the most part, we've stuck more with high flow. I, ha I have to say, and this may be heresy, we've really stuck to the same uh, uh, approaches we've used on, on all of our respiratory failures. So we haven't let people, I, I, you may have seen my eyes get a little wide when I, you, you mentioned something about people on BiPAP at 100% for, I don't know how long you're leaving them on that. I guess we, we have not done that. We've intubated. I, I don't think there's a, a an early or a late intubation. There's just an appropriate time to intubate. And so we've maybe we're fortunate to have the resources to do it. But we've been intubating. You know, uh, uh, folks. We get concerned when they're above 70, 80 percent for quite a bit of time. So. Okay. Sticking with the topic of mechanical ventilation, um, can anybody comment on the use of APRV, airway pressure release ventilation, versus ARSNET? A uh, hot button issue. I, I, I can let Dr. Kadir talk about it. This is a big debate within our group. We have several uh, folks from the military who've used it uh, a little bit more extensively, and uh, there's been debate. Um, I, I guess I don't have a specific, uh, you know, paper or anything I can point to. I, you know, I, I've always thought that you should use the mode that you know the best and can apply the, uh, appropriately and to tailor to the uh, respiratory mechanics, but uh, I'll let others comment. Uh, I think from 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 our point of view, we we haven't been a, a big users of of APRV. I can see that this COVID nineteen um, pandemic could give us some answer whether whether APRV is actually that much better than low tidal volume ventilation. Um, but uh, we we like most of the i think mo most of most of the others on the on the panel we just stuck to the guns that we knew were working and and we followed the um the low tidal volume strategy with not too high peep so being in the military and being an advocate of aprv uh, i can tell you i mean if you're there bedside 24 7 for weeks at a time uh, and you can do APRV and RTs are all skilled and you're doing it consistently and doing it right, I could see where it's beneficial. But my experience has been, you put somebody in APRV, the next shift somebody comes along, switches them back to, to low tidal volume and you go back and forth, you do more harm than good. So I've completely abandoned APRV in my practice. 
I would just to add to that, I think that the point of you should use the mode that you're most comfortable with makes um, the most sense here. I, I don't think there's anything intrinsically wrong with APRV if you know what you're doing. Um, but the problem is, um, you know, one thing, what, one thing that you just said is you go, the next shift, somebody changes them back to some other mode. Um, and I think that's because a lot of physicians, while they hear APRV and they think it sounds like cool and new and exciting, don't actually know the best setting in which to use it. Um, another caveat to APRV is sometimes you can end up giving your, your patient can get very high tidal volumes if you're not vigilant um, and you're not keeping on top of that. Um, so I don't think there's anything wrong with using it, but I think that a lot of people unfortunately lack the experience and expertise um, in order to use it correctly. And we should remain humble in those circumstances and stick with the things that we know how to do well. Great, thank you very much for those comments. Uh, we do have another question that is a little bit of a different topic, anticoagulation, prophylactic anticoagulation post-discharge. So what is your practice with regards to, as patients are leaving the ICU or getting discharged home, are you sending them home on anticoagulation? Well, um, yeah, let me, I'll, I'll take that one. So the, uh, you know, the, the chest guidelines and uh, I, the International Society of Thrombosis and Hemostasis uh, are a little bit at odds on that. Not terribly, but a little bit. The ACCP doesn't recommend that routinely, but uh, selection on a case-by-case -case basis, which I think is probably what is almost undoubtedly what we're doing here. Um, the, uh, the, uh, Society of Hemostasis and thr uh, thromb uh, Thrombosis, uh, really, uh, advocates, uh, you know, again, again, uh, a decision based on the patient's underlying risk factors. Um, every one of our patients, when they, I, I, I don't see anybody when they're being discharged from the hospital, I only see them pretty much in the ICU. So I, I, I can't tell you what, what my practice there is cause I don't have one. Uh, but I tell you that that's what happens in our hospital. And I think that, uh, again, uh, any blanket statement about how to approach these people uh, is probably not going to be appropriate. I think, you again, you take it as the guidelines suggest on a case-by-case -case basis uh, based on the patient and what their uh, wishes are, the risk factors for bleeding, which I think are often underestimated in this, in this cohort. And then um, you look at their risk for thrombosis and, and then you make a decision based on that. Uh, the, the two societies do suggest that, that it be a finite period of 30 days to six weeks uh, if, if that's done. Great, thank you very much. I think uh, we just have time for a couple of more questions and I'll just uh, take the liberty of uh, maybe going around. Uh, convalescent plasma in the ICU late in the game, yay or nay? I can comment as a center. We've we've used some convalescent plasma. The data is mixed. We've had uh, uh, um, you know a, a mixed results. I, I, there's no strong advice either way. I don't know if Th Thomas has other. Um, the the current evidence and our and our own own uh, experience points that if you give it by the time the patients get to the uh, critical care unit. And in, in our center, that means that they are at least, especially in the second wave, they are at least uh, 14 to 16 days into their illness, then uh, it doesn't really add much to the, to the rest of the therapy. Okay. Um, what are your feelings on tocilizumab? 
I think Tomas should take that question because <laughs> Remap Cap has issued some teasers and I'm, I'm dying to know. Works great for CAR T neurotoxicity. <laughs> yeah, so uh, we, we have heard uh, that the interim analysis showed that, that it might be better than standard care. So currently all our patients and every single patient who is, on, who is on our ICU will get randomized into remap cap. They will have some sort of immunomodulators if they are eligible for, for that domain. Um, it is still a really big question. And I think um, uh, 27th of December, so early, early next year, we will have some, uh, some data on that in what, in what way tocilizumab could be beneficial because it could be that it, it helps to reduce mortality, or it could be that it just helps to reduce uh, the shock state in, in certain patients. But um, I've got a good feeling about it, but I don't know how good that feeling uh, will be at the end. I think there was a New England Journal paper came out today that showed no difference, but uh, only 230 patients or so. Um, so final question for the panel. Uh, I noticed and I was pleasantly surprised that all of you were uh, on Med Twitter. Um, overall, how does the panel feel that social media has helped or hurt the management of COVID? I think it's done both. Um, and I like go back and forth with my, like either loving Twitter or hating Twitter. Um, it does help you keep on top of, you know, what is new that's, that's come out, what's been published in the last few days, because the rate of information dissemination has been just like out of this world in this past year. Um, I think you have to be careful um, in terms of what you believe on Twitter, of course. Um, I think where, it, where it's very useful is you know, where your colleagues might post a new um, article or like the PI for a big study may post their take on it. I think it's incredibly useful in that regard. And you get to like interact almost in real time with these folks. Um, but it's, you know, you have to be cautious to not get lost in the, in the mud, whatever that saying is, lost in the woods, whatever, you know what I mean. So if I, if I can add, I'm, I'm an avid Twitter user, um, and uh, I, I actually, in the last couple of months, used Twitter less and less. I read a lot, but I haven't posted that much compared to, to the previous months, and, uh, and I, would, I would go with uh, what uh, Dr. Kadir just said, that uh, you, if you've got uh, trusted colleagues, and then you created your own little trusted echo chamber, then it can be extremely useful. But if you do open out to the wild, and then you dip your toes into, um, into the, the, the stranger things, then, then it, it can seriously harm. Um, and Twitter being a text-based, um, although there are lots of pictures, but, but pr uh, primarily a text-based platform, it is not a good platform for debate and, and try to persuade people uh, about your point of view. So uh, don't get involved in Twitter wars. Especially in just several characters, right? So I agree with there. There are the, certainly the benefits of, of, of this, but uh, I think what's, what's the old adage about the amount of energy to refute bullshit is an order of magnitude bigger than that to produce it. I, you could spend your whole day kind of trying to debunk things on there, so. 
Okay, I think we're going to wrap it up here. Uh, I'd like to thank all our panelists for their time uh, this afternoon, uh, providing their uh, wonderful insights into the care clinical management of, of COVID. I want to thank uh, all those who uh, tuned in for this webinar. And I'd like to remind the audience that part three of this seminar series is next week, same time, Ethics, Research and Communication, December 17th. So if you enjoyed this session, please uh, tune in for the next one. Uh, thank you very much, everyone, for your attention and your comments, and uh, we'll see you next time.